Most of us can think back to when we were in school, whether that was in the last week or the last century, and recall a teacher or course that helped shape our professional trajectory. For Dr. Jim Ivey, it was a physics class that suddenly made the theoretical real. And for many environmental science students at the University of South Florida, it's Jim's popular water monitoring field methods course. In his senior-level class, students design their own research projects, collect data using sophisticated water monitoring equipment, and report their findings to a diverse group of peers and professionals. Even the seemingly simple exercise of maintaining a detailed lab field notebook instills a degree of discipline and helps prepare students for the workforce. In our conversation with Jim, he talks about his course, his own professional journey, and his ongoing research related to autonomous water quality monitoring platforms. With infectious enthusiasm and refreshing pragmatism, he advocates for hands-on training and paints a vivid picture of environmental water monitoring, past, present, and future. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Aquapod, where we share water monitoring stories from the field. I'm Helen Taylor with In-Situ. And I'm Eric Robinson, In-Situ's Application Development Manager for Surface Water. And joining us today is Jim Ivey. Jim is an instructor in the Environmental Sciences Program at the University of South Florida, St. Petersburg. His popular field methods course there includes lectures, labs, instruction on autonomous water quality monitoring systems, mapping and monitoring equipment operation, and actual project design and execution. He mentors both graduate and undergraduate students, conducts research on estuarine health, and he's Eric's old boss. That's right. After graduating from the University of Georgia and working in industry, Dr. Ivy returned to academics and received a master's in biological and optical oceanography from the University of Southern Mississippi. He then pursued and received a PhD in optical oceanography from the University of South Florida, where he now teaches. Dr. Ivy also spent seven and a half years in basic research at the Florida Wildlife Research Institute, where we met. It's really great to have you here today, Jim. Well, thanks a bunch, Eric. So we've known each other now for 10, 11 years, some 10 years about that. Yeah, about 10 years, I guess. Yeah. So, Jim, one of the things we're really excited to talk to you about today, um, beyond how you got into academics and why you decided to pursue this path and and why you chose to go down uh, the pathway in academics of something like optical oceanography, is your your coursework that you now teach and its importance moving forward, the idea of a vocation as it matters for the sciences. Um, is there anything that, as we kind of get started, that really lands for you in the idea of vocation in science? The goal should be in a lot of colleges now, and it's, it's what Votech schools do when you mention vocation, is hands-on training and stuff that they can put on their resume. So it's got to be one of the biggest things that um, that it, my students have found is being able to be able to use uh, GIS programs, being able to say that they've done certain types of field research, and also to use water quality monitoring instruments. Um, the, I make sure everybody uses one and puts it down. Everybody uses a GIS program, a, a, a freeware program that's um, um, available through the Department of Energy, and puts it down on their resume and just builds their resume to show that, hey, I've done this before. And that really gives them a leg up on other other um, colleges where students are graduating with just a, a good book knowledge, but maybe not the actual physical skills. And it helps the employer because that person can hit the ground running instead of you know them having to watch over them for you know, uh, months or a year or so to get them up to speed. 
Yeah, you, you certainly have an acolyte in that belief system here with with me. Before we get further down that path, let's go a little bit deeper into to your history and and how you got to where you are now. So, so Jim, as as I know very well, you you got done with school at the University of Georgia, spent some time in industry uh, with a, some other positions, and decided to go back into academics. Um, when you did that. What drew you to optical oceanography and why was that really the path that you decided you were going to go down for presumably the rest of your life? Well, it started off, actually, my interest was in marine microbiology. And so phytoplankton ecology study of phytoplankton themselves, uh, a lot of that centers around being able to detect them. And so while I was at the University of Southern Miss, um, my professor really did not have a, a steady stream of funds coming in. But it was based out of the Stennis Space Center, where the um, where the, the main oceanography college was, and the Naval Research had, uh, Laboratory, along with NASA, those a variety of groups had um had this is one of the areas of the largest aggregations of oceanographers in the world is at Stennis Space Center, and so the Naval Research Laboratory is looking to hire somebody, and my um, mentor there, Dr. Alan Weidman, hired me, and I started working in oceanography you know, as a, as a graduate student under him. Um, doing optical oceanography and kind of being there, his phytoplankton bioptics person. And I realized how much I love physics. And I, I was a terrible student as an undergrad, but <laughs> when I started playing around with physics, I was saw the interactions with light and water and how the numbers and stuff added up. I was like, wow, it's something that is really fundamental principles that I can apply to biology, which is very unusual. Biology is usually kind of, you know, let's do a curve fit. Um, so I thought, the, uh, I thought it was really kind of neat. And um, I, I kind of fell in love with it then. And plus, I got lot, worked with lots of neat gadgets. I mean, I did my, I did my master's thesis on one of the most um, difficult instruments around. In fact, people keep telling me I need to, I need to finally get some of that data published. It was using a, a, an instrument called an AC9 um, that is basically in-water spectrometer. And the only way you could get good data out of it, you physically had to put a um, high-end uh, millipore um, deionized water system on the boat with you. And every morning, get up, clean the instrument, and calibrate it using um, uh, this purified water. So you spent like an hour or so every morning calibrating the instrument while you're out in the boat just to get any good data out of it. So it, it, after doing that, I learned the instrument. So I was like, it's kind of like puzzles. I love figuring all that out. Yeah, as as you were working at Stennis, was there anything that really stood out to you there? I mean, it's that's one of those research facilities that's known globally for what goes on on that campus. And as a, as a young man who was getting into something new and finding out what, what your passion was, you know, first with, with kind of gadgets and things you could tinker with, and then also with physics, these kind of basic principles for how the world works. Um, was, was there something, some experience there at Stennis that stood out to you? Well, the main experience was that because I was working with the Navy and they had decent funding, um, I got to see so many amazing things. I mean, I, I, I was able to go um, travel around up and down the, um, the the East Coast and go out on the ships and spend sometimes, you know, weeks out on ships and see sites like um, sea swells where I was on a 250-foot boat and parts of it would come up and down and you look like you're in the middle of a valley and all you saw were water, walls of water on either side when we were out here in the Gulf Stream. Wow. And the water is the brilliant color blue that you've ever seen. So stuff like that. It was really neat. I had those opportunities um, when I was at Stennis, and I was able then to interact with all these different people from every type of group, from 
the military, to the academia, to the um, to the um, applied sciences, to um, space science. NASA has, of course, has a big presence out there. So I, I, it was a lot that really stood out for me there. It was just a neat experience. Yeah, it's 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 certainly something that really lands with me. The idea that there are a great number of students that are trying to find their way in the sciences and, and finding what matters to them, but have a, have a challenging time understanding where their passion gets applied in the world. Yeah. I mean, I would never known that optics was my interest because like I said, I was, I really struggled with physics when I was an undergrad. Now, whenever I went back to grad school and, and I retook physics, I made actually the highest grade in the class because I was able to learn to apply myself. But I never realized that I would like it until I sat there and tried it and, and was able to work with it hands-on instead of just, you know, being to some numbers on a test. I was physically going out measuring the interaction of light and water, solving Maxwell's equations as they, you know, as you go down through the water column, using some um, modeling programs to do that. And so um, it, it was really a neat experience for that. So let's let's move a little bit forward, Jim. I uh, I know in, in talking to you over, over the last 10 years, um, you got to have... Uh, first at, at Southern Miss, but then at USF, some really, really neat experiences out on research cruises, things that, that you and I have been able to, to talk about for a lot of years. So with, with that being kind of the foundation here, uh, what, were, what were some of those experiences on those research cruises over the years that really stood out to you? If you could pick just you know a couple that, that have stuck with you. Oh, well, definitely the Coastal Benthic Optical Properties um, study. It was a month-long study where we rode boats from um, US, from USF St. Pete's um, 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 docks all the way down to the Bahamas and spent a month in the Bahamas. And it was, it, it, don't get me wrong, it, it is a beautiful place to work. A lot of people hear stuff like that and go, oh, you're in the Bahamas. <laughs> you know, you're collecting shells and dive snorkeling. Those boats are expensive. I mean, modern research vessels run, uh, even at the discounted rates we get for the for U.S. for being part of the university of, of the university system here in Florida, um, are about twelve thousand dollars a day. Wow, that's just for the boat, not for the personnel too. Uh, you, you are also paying people, you know, that that are going out in these boats. So you work eighteen hour days. You work as you work until you drop. You might get one day, one, a couple hours off, you know, at night or. At, maybe a couple hours, maybe a half a day to sightsee, but majority of the time you're working. But it is a beautiful place to work. I, I remember as we were leaving the Bahamas one time to get what we call a, get to ground truth the satellite data. We went to an area um, called uh, the Sargasso Sea, where the um, kind of the tongue of the ocean area, where the water was super clear. In fact, um, it's a famous paper by Smith and Baker used that as the ultimate pure water. And the water was the weirdest color I've ever seen. It was violet because it had no dissolved organics hardly in it at all. There's nothing in it but salt and water. And, and you had this pure ocean of this kind of glowing violet all around you. Wow, that sounds amazing. Huh. That was yeah. one of the experiences. The other experience I had that was fun was um, I got to be a technician and the student up at Friday Harbor Lab in Washington State. Um, my professor was teaching a course up there. And basically, I took my instrument package that had never been done, used hardly before. It had been used once. And I was working on it as we were up there. But it, it was just a neat experience going out there and seeing different waters and seeing different environments from somebody who's been used to you know the, the, the flatness of Florida to that kind of topography they got out the Puget Sound region. It's just gorgeous. Mm -hmm. Well, I know... 
one of the other things that always stood out to me in the conversations with you about experiences you've had um, was not just, you know, when things go right, but some of those experiences when things go wrong on research cruises and how that can <laughs> that something that sticks with you. <laughs> you talked, um, I'll sing lovingly, but certainly with, with uh, reverence to some degree of, of having um, electrical systems, you know, high voltage electrical systems short out on you in the field. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the, uh, I told you this. Uh, this is something I told Eric when I first hired yeah. him. I said, you're not going to be a good research electronics technician until you can create blue smoke. <laughs> so you, you got to be short. To the board. So we had this instrument that was pumping 300 volts down into the, um, into the water, 300 volts of DC, because it was powering. I had, I had this instrument package that had 16 different instruments on it. And it got a, a short and a, a break in one of the main lines running to it. And I fired this thing up, and it literally a puff of blue smoke came up <laughs> from it as it self-destructed the um, the main control module for this instrument. Fortunately, I had a backup. The other thing, as Eric will tell you, you always you always expect the worst. If you put something overboard a ship, you expect it eventually not to come back. <laughs> if you go to sea, and, and it was always my weird superstition. I wanted to have. I, I felt better if I had a problem up front that I had to fix because it was almost like. Okay, I've got it out of the way, but it's it's called experiment for a reason. <laughs> Something's <laughs> going to happen. <laughs> People have not done this before. It's not a tried and true process most of the time. There's always something that can go wrong. Yeah, I still have the approach with everyone with this that what you're doing is really you're you're, you're taking um, sophisticated electronics and putting them underwater. And it always it always kind of got me when something did go wrong. And people would act surprised, like, well, how could that ever happen? <laughs> I have a pretty good idea, actually. <laughs> well, it, 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 it gets into the, the puzzle of science. You know, you, 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 a good scientist is also a good mechanic. They can figure out how physically things go together. They work. They can take it apart, put it back together, and figure out what's going wrong. I remember one of the weirdest ones I had was this, this optical instrument. We were lowering it down through the water column. And it was, it was measuring absorption values at different wavelengths. And, and we lowered out the water column. And it was fine that all of a sudden it would go completely set, completely dark <laughs> as though it was looking through black water. It's like, no, we know the water's not that dark down there. And it would raise it back up and it would clear up again. And we'd lower it back down. And I realized what had happened was on the lens, the, the outer, um, outer glass right over the main lens, had got a slow leak in it. A little bit of water was getting in there. And so when we hit the thermocline, which was fairly steep and was cold, all of a sudden it fogs oh. and it was fogging up the lens and blocking the light. So stuff like that's kind of fun to actually, <laughs> once you figure it out, you're kind of like, Hey, I figured that one out. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. yeah. So Jim, you took a little bit of time away from academics to help raise your twin sons. And when, when they were old enough, you decided to return was there was there any question as to whether or not you were going to get back into science and to, to optical oceanography, or was there something else that was drawing your attention at that point? I know. Um, I think it, what had happened was a kind of backtrack. I was I, when I graduated from um, Georgia, I wanted to make lots of money. I was I, I wanted to be well off, and so I was like, "Well, I got to go into sales," and so. Um, I, I, after the fourth company went out of business on me, I was like, well, I'm not happy. And I'm, 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 I'm not really doing something that challenges me and has the intellectual challenge. And so I went into science. Well, as you know, kids are also that way. They are a challenge and they're a rewarding challenge to it. 
So whenever um, my sons were born, my sons have a disability. My sons are deaf. And um, they had to get cochlear implants, which required lots of, of going um, of going to therapy sessions and several surgeries and such. And they're great now. In fact, one of my sons takes voice lessons. Oh, wow. He's seen. And so the um, to, and I built a bond with them. So for the first three and a half years of their life, I was their sole provider. Now my professor understood this. He he said, "All right, you can you. I'm still going to keep you owned, and I was still listed." And I would go in and do a little bit of work on my dissertation, but I was never, I, I really didn't accomplish anything during that time except to take care of my sons. And he was totally fine with that. And so once my sons got old enough and they were through their surgeries and were well into their speech therapies, um, and my wife had the health insurance at that time. I, as a graduate student in, in, in Florida, did not have health insurance at that time. Wow. Um, so they, they recently have done it. Um, Give, they recently have passed a rule that gives them here um, health insurance. But at that time, um, the only health insurance I could get was coverage under my wife as a, as a high school teacher. And so um, I was able to, we were able to finally get them into some daycare and I was able to start to go back and start to work on my dissertation then. And so it was, it was not a doubt, um, but it was, it, I highly recommend the, the experience, you know, to be able to spend that time with your kids too, if it's ever possible. Yeah. I know for people that's not possible at all, but I'll just yeah, I, I kind of, uh, we get to joke around about around the office a little bit that I, I have, uh, just for, for everyone's knowledge, I have a, I have a six month old and as challenging as COVID has been for the rest of the world, you know, prior, prior to COVID coming along, I would travel at least half of the month going to, to work with people in different parts of the world. And with COVID I've been home. And so I've been able to take the last six months and just spend it waking my daughter up every morning. So it's, it's been a real challenge for everyone else, but it, 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 the timing really couldn't have been much a better. A bit of a gift <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Jim, kind of, kind of moving to, to the teaching thing a little bit, was there ever a question for you that teaching was going to be in your future? Was that something that you always knew or did you, did you kind of try your hand at it a little bit and realize this is something that I really enjoy that really is meaningful to me? Well, I, I mean, I've always, teaching is an interaction with people directly, um, just like sales. And I, I enjoy people. I'm not, I'm, I'm not really introverted. Um, I, I, I don't have any problem talking with large groups of people or meeting with people. And so, and getting that research was fun, but being able to see the research through other people's eyes and see that spark when it happens and to see that, that, that light bulb go off and say, Oh, this is how it works. Or to see a new idea come from them. Um, to me, that was amazing. So when I, I, I was at fish and wildlife and I realized that, um, that things were, that, that I wasn't, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do that for the rest of my life. Um, the, Plus the, um, as you remember, the um, kind of the the direction of them were changing from uh, a lot more of the the ecosystem research, like I like to do, to more of the direct detection of harmful algal blooms and such. Sure. And so I um I started teaching uh, part time as an adjunct just to see if I'd like it, and I loved it. I loved that spark, and I loved interacting and dealing with the students. So teaching has always been. I mean, you, you go back and, and read about this, um, and I know that I got to experience it with, with, as a child because what my dad did, um, that teaching has always been a very strong part of science. That, you know, 
it's it's the process of mentoring and working with those who will follow you that also drives the knowledge of the instructor. Have have you been able to benefit you think yourself directly from teaching? Oh, absolutely. Every year, every every uh, if you're going to be in, if you're going to teach, one thing you've got to do first is love to learn yourself. And taking things from new perspectives or getting people to investigate things of their own and the reading what they've done. I'm constantly learning stuff. I mean, I, I teach the senior seminar class where the students go out and gather papers to talk about them. And, and in my field methods class, I tell the students design your own experiment. Tell me what you want to want to want to explore. And I'll see if using some of our materials, I can get together and we can, we can do this. And I'd never done microplastics work. I now know how to do microplastics work and have done, microplastic measurements with my students. Wow. So, and, and with that being the case, do you think there was a, you know, you've been teaching for a number of years, but do you think there was a, a challenging transition? There was a lot of challenges with it. Um, but I mean, I had some good mentors to it. My, my mother is an art teacher. Um, she taught art all her life and was at director of the arts programs for the county she was in and then also the, for the arts education programs in fairly you know kind of a mid-sized little county and then she also specialized in learning different ways of teaching and education and then my wife that we've been married 27 years she is a high school chemistry teacher and so i learned a lot from her and so i always mm-hmm. had some expectation going into it um the challenges that i really that i really ex- experienced at first were um how to get the kids the kids, the students' interest. Say, like kids. <laughs> as, as a person, as a person who's getting older, you know, kids is not is not the derogatory slur that it used to be. Someone says it to me. <laughs> the kids these kids days today. Yeah, yeah, I told somebody that the other day. I was like, the kids these days, they're better than I was. I mean, I, yeah. I, I, yeah. I was terrible. I mean, seriously, I grew up in the seventies. Yeah, the seventies and eighties. Yeah, the, it, go back. People that say the kids these days are are, are worse than they were back then uh, have just they they. They've, They've forgotten. forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah, the the the, um, the the be able to, I got the best advice, and it really helped me out a lot. Was teaching from uh, a um, a colleague of my wife's. He was teaching. At, he was actually teaching at the at St. Pete College in Biology, and he said, I, "I'll give you this number one advice when you teach: entertain them, <laughs> be interesting." Yeah, I mean. I do gimmicks and stuff like make dad jokes. And so I found, and I, I'll come out and say, I'm a dad, so I'm allowed to say these, these really corny jokes. And um, by doing stuff like that, you can get the students involved in it, you know, and, and, and figure out what, what sparks their passion. You know, that's another thing I had to figure out. You know, every student is different. Some students are, you know, especially in environmental science, which I teach, you know, some students are more interested in sustainability. Some people are more interested in the environment section of it. And then the other thing that I learned that I had to do that, that I had to adapt to is I couldn't just sit there and talk to them. I had to sit there and like we're doing now, interact, ask questions and get feedback and then give questions to me. And then on top of that, I had to vary my instruction. People learn in different methods. Some learn visually, some learn auditory more, some learn reading, some learn combination, some learn hands-on. So if you could bring all that together in one lesson, and, and the way you give your lesson, then it works out much better for the students, I think. That's yeah. Great. And I think that's a great segue to kind of talk about, uh, talk about your course a little bit. 
the the field methods course that you teach at the University of South Florida St. Petersburg, I think is one of the most interesting and innovative courses anyone's teaching at that level in the country. So Jim, let's talk a little bit about the course. When you were thinking about this, what was the the real motivating factor for you wanting to do this? What was the thing? Because it was new. You you created this course from scratch and, and had to pitch it to the university and all those things. So what was what was the thing that kept pushing you towards wanting to do this? Well, the main thing was that when I talked to my colleagues, like even stuff that were going for PhD over at the um, over at um, um, USF's um, College of Marine Sciences, which is right next to our campus. Um, one of the comments they always said was, you know, we wish people had skills. You know, I had to teach myself. I'm self-taught in, you know, computer coding and engineering and all this other stuff. But I've always been kind of a grease monkey anyway. You know, I'd work on cars and such like that. So I, I grew up that way. And so um, I had this, had some some basic training when I was younger. But a lot of these students don't. Some of them do not know how to turn a wrench or to you know, diagnose a problem like this. And so it was a, it was a, a area that was lacking in students that were trying to go on to, to different levels or to go out in the real world. Yeah. And I want my students to be, you know, the, the best students right now, you know, it's two students that both came through my field methods course and some other courses and they're pursuing PhDs already in the, in the short time I've been here at USL. Wow. That's great. So what was the what was the starting point then? Trying to think, it was kind of one of these things that just got a idea, then kept growing. So you know, I, I, because I was an instrument geek for whenever I was um, working at FWRI, I, it was kind of a natural for me. And I always thought that you know, we always I discussed this with colleagues when I was there. You know, how do we develop a way of teaching folks here? Um, when I got to FWRI, I found um, some of the some of the technicians were not really following procedures. They didn't that RTFM read the full manual? <laughs> I thought I was going to say something else. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they, they, did, they did not read the full manual. So um, I, I was a, a big reader of manuals. So I would actually, I, I remember our, our, our sign manual that we had was 700 pages long. I read the whole thing, wow. cover to cover. Yeah. And so I, I, I would sit around and, and read manuals and, and, and learn the technical skills for it. But I realized a lot of these folks had, you know, they just didn't have the patience for it. And so I wanted a course where I could build into that. So I got to talking with my um, assistant dean at the time, a fellow named Scott Burkhart. He's over at the University of Texas now. But um, both him and I came from oceanography. So we started uh, both for College of Marine Sciences. And so we started talking about this idea of what students needed. He was like, yeah, you need to get a course on that. It's like, yeah, I do. So I started researching around and trying to figure out how to do it and what aspects of a student, if they were to go out and and, and do a um, go out and do a re- and develop the research project, what were the different steps they need to go through? So I, I read up on that, started coming up with an outline for it, um, and and kind of based it on the on the way of letting students also lead through it and, and find something they're interested in. So um, I was able to um, kind of then pitch this course through that. I remember the first time we did it. Universities have like a code for a special research, directed research type thing, or special topics course is what they called it. And so the first semester I did it was a special topics course. And the students loved it so much that they, um, they, um, that we decided to go and apply for a full course for it. And as, after we did that, 
it became the students were at, at first it was only one semester. Now I have to teach it every semester, uh, every spring and fall. And it became so popular that they decided to add it to the curriculum. And so if you're a science, environmental science student, you have to take this course now. Oh, it's mandatory now. Wow, that's terrific. Yeah, that's it's really exciting. Did you, Jim, get any any pushback on it from anyone? Is your because as a person who has to pitch things pretty regularly, I understand that that some form of pushback is always always to be expected. Well, actually, there was really good support from the university here. I, I, I did not receive any sort of pushback at all. The biggest struggle with this course has not been pushback from the university; has been trying to find materials for the course, which that's yeah. one of the reasons I appreciate your company. <laughs> Y'all love yeah. the equipment for it too. Yeah, and then for transparency's sake, um, I'll say that in situ's been been working with Dr. Ivy on this course for a number of years. We we donate equipment uh, for the students to use in the field um, because we we do feel very strongly about the value of instruction and field instruction. So this is something we've been involved with for some time. Um, with with that being said, Jim. Let me ask you, what's the thing that you have been able to present to the kids where they really took it up? Mm, I think the biggest thing, and it's kind of a small thing, but it's the biggest thing. And in fact, the way it it's impactful for them is because I actually require them to do this and give them a fairly large portion of the grade is keep a very detailed and accurate lab build notebook. <laughs> so this course the thing about this course is I do not teach basic science in this course. These are senior level courses. So I assume they've got all the basic sciences. They understand how estuaries work. They understand how organisms work. I mean, I'll help them out with it, with parts of that, but I want the student to go through the process of designing an experiment and how, you know, they, they design sampling routines. They, um, uh, the first part in the course, of course, is the scientific method, which I think, um, as scientists, that's probably the most important thing we can ever pass on the students is, a, is how they use the scientific method. And then how to take that method and then work it from hypothesis all the way through to a, a research study to a conclusion on their own. And to, to, to interact then with other students. So the other part of this course, they're required to vote on as a group, either one or two places to do their research. They can't just, they can't, everybody can't go their separate ways. And I have everybody, they kind of naturally come together and a group of them will say, I'm going to research this and I'm going to research that. And so they, they then are able to interact with each other and compare each other's data. And I try and help them along like, you know, Hey, you know, you're, you're seeing um, a grain size, different grain size in sand, and it's changing the differences in microplastics. There may be something to that. What do you think? But the, the other thing that I was able to take away from working with, with you and your students a little bit in the past uh, was the value of, of presenting to professionals and to others outside of just their, their classmates. I think the course does an interesting job of putting them in a position where to be successful, they, they need to present in front of people they, they, they've never met before. Uh, well, I agree. And what, what I try to do for that final exam is they basically have a, a, a symposium. Um, the symposium, we I, I try and get one of our nicer facilities here at USF, and we invite the whole college to it. And I even have snacks and food in the back. Um, occasionally, uh, I'll get hold of a, 
uh, a venison sausage for my um for my brother-in-law he, he he's a big hunter and i'll put some of that out there so people come for the venison sausage and so they, <laughs> it, it's a it, it's kind of a fun thing there it's kind of like a real course and then i have them come up and i present have them each go one at a time and, and present i try and order them so that they kind of build off each other so we get like the um the the folks doing um water quality with uh with a sign usually go first if they're doing an aquatic area since we're surrounded by water here that's most of the time that they're, they're going to have some sort of aquatic portion to it so they give the basic this is temperature salinity um phdo and then the rest will go into chlorophyll and and, and color forms and such like that so it is a fun course unfortunately under covid i haven't been able to do that for the past year yeah. so we've had to go virtual um we have a virtual symposium um and so we haven't have been able, they haven't been able to get the direct interaction or feedback so that has been one loss that we've had so, Jim, I remember when we did a webinar with you last year where we talked with several professors about their coursework with their kids and getting instrumentation into their hands and letting them work in the field. You shared a few of the projects um, that they had worked on, especially around uh, water monitoring, water quality monitoring. Could you maybe just share one or two and that, that, that you recall that were particularly uh, interesting and fun. Oh, geez. They, they always surprise me with something new every year. Um, probably one of the most interesting one was <laughs> Baybar Harbor, which is our, our backyard here. Um, if you, if, if you walk out the back of my office, about a hundred yards, you're in the Bay. And so it's a beautiful area, but the water quality had never been really researched along, along this area that much. And so there, there's several mate, they call them creeks or streams, but they're are, they're they're really drain, big drainage ditches now here in, in Florida. It's in this heavily populated um, a peninsula run, and so they pull from all over the um, all over St. Pinellas County. So I had a student. He put a um, it was actually one of your instruments. We so put it at at eighty six hundred on a time series down at Booker Creek as it flows into um, into Bayburn. And it was neat because they, they didn't believe me when I told them this is the way it works sometimes. But during the day, the dissolved oxygen levels were tremendous. You know, they're like 120, 130% of saturation or even higher. You know, nice green water coming in during the night, zero, absolute zero. It just went down to zero. Wow. So that was kind of shocking. And, and, and so that was, that was a very interesting one there. Uh, students this semester are doing a, an interesting one. I, I've never done this before. Um, but they are going to a, a local um, a local park called Sawgrass Lake. Well, Sawgrass Lake apparently is bordering on a skeet shooting range in the middle of Pinellas, in the middle of St. Pete, which I didn't <laughs> realize had skeet shooting ranges in the town. And so what had happened over time was these people were shooting these pellets up there full of lead, and it had tremendous lead levels in this really nice um, um, swamp that we've got right in the middle of St. Pete, you know, this kind of nice nature area. And so they supposedly have remediated that. Oh, good. So I've got students that are going out and grabbing water samples and soil samples, and we're going to try using an atomic absorption um, spectrometer. I've never, I've, we purchased it, but I've never used it before. And um, we're going to try and see if their lead levels are still high out there. So that's another interesting one. Yeah, that has real impact for the area too. That's interesting. Yeah, that's that's a great Great question to ask here, Jim. 
as the students have been able to get out and do some of the work and be involved, have you seen any interaction with the community where they've been able to do something that's either impactful for their knowledge, where they've been able to take that and use it in working with the community or something the community had interest in? Um, we do some. If the problem is, is that on, on the, 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 the studies as they do them right now are only four, four weeks. And so it's kind of hard to do a long-term environmental trend in four to five weeks. Um, so they, they were able to see some stuff and we present it in ways that everybody can look at it. We noticed some neat, interesting stuff like um, um, probably the most impactful one was we were doing fecal coliform studies here in Baybor Harbor and several areas around. And it found that there in St. Pete area, a lot of the waters are severely impaired. They've got uh, lots of fecal coliforms present. Um, <laughs> I mean, they shut down a beach with when you get 200 um, colony forming units per 100 mils. And um, we had one person that, would, that did fecal coliforms of an oyster in Baybor Harbor here. And it was 1.2 million cells per 100 mils at the oyster. Another one did an area of Baybor Harbor um, where apparently somebody, where they were, you know, pumping out the septic systems of boats nearby um, at the marina. And it, uh, 10,000 um, cells per 100 mils. So, those are kind of impactful there. They at least let us know what's going on here. Do you see uh, the students coming in with area, specific areas and, and a focus of interest given the pressures on the environment that they're so aware of? They can't not be aware of, right? Uh, oh, yeah. Well, no, what happens is when they start having research areas, a couple of students will find something they're passionate about, an area that they're passionate about. And they become the leaders of the group. So the other ones may not have any direction they're interested in, but they usually snap those people up. So this one student had a passion and apparently had heard about the lead levels in Sawgrass Lake. This other student that we're doing for this semester, um, we've got a local beach. Um, Eric, you probably remember Gandy Beach. Yeah. It was, it was, it's a very, it's an unregulated kind of beach area. Um, I tried to even, I tried to see if I could find out who to get a permit from to have a student do research out there. And apparently there's no real authority out there. And so Gibby Beach, this student, she, she, she's like, I want to study this area because I want to see how the impact has without the regulation on it. And so we're actually going to do total N and total P, um, nitrate, nitrogen and phosphate, um, using a porosulfate digestion, which we've never done before, of waters in Gibby Beach. And then I've got other students. So she drug other students along and, and gave a good passionate speech about it. And they're like, "Yo, well, let's try microplastics." And this other student's like, "Oh, I'm going to go out and look at the um, at the trash levels. You know, do a do a survey of trash and where the trash is found." And another one's doing plants. And another, you know, we've got people doing. Of course, they're 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 taking um, a sign out there and getting water quality as a background on all this. So, and then another one's doing fecal coliforms, which unfortunately um, were. We, we diluted it at um, one to 10 and that still needs to be diluted even more. <laughs> Jeez. Wow. Yeah. So, so quite high. I was going to say, so, and some of the students, I think they, they learn stuff through this and then they take it on the new projects later. Mm-hmm. And so we, uh, we encourage undergraduate research. And so if the student has a passion about something leading out from the field methods and they're still around here that they can then carry this own forward into a, into a project either in graduate school or just in a project um, uh, as part of their senior year here. 
Have, have you been able to see that? Have you been able to, to see kids take these projects into graduate studies or to professional studies or something else? I've seen it influence kind of what they wanted. Like, for instance, I had a, a student that uh, was in my remote sensing class and um, also did a um, also did. Um, he actually took a, 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 one of your war quality instruments, put it on the back of a kayak and did a map and did a, a GIS map of Baybor Harbor. Of, of our of our, um, our our bay right here, and he's now pursuing a PhD in my area of expertise, optical oceanography, remote sensing. Then another student who, after working this class, um, she did uh, chlorophyll measurements and also analyzed um, sound data. Um, went on and because of her experience, a, a colleague of mine asked me if I had somebody recommended as a technician. Uh, hired her, and um, she was working for. Um, boat marine labs um, studying um, helping study harmful algal blooms as she's now pursuing her PhD in study of harmful algal blooms so it kind of steps up to it that's really exciting so Jim let's let's come back a little bit to the time period where you and I got to meet each other and and work a little bit now you you started the program and you were around the program at FWRI before I started with you Um, and we're able to kind of see it grow and mature and change over the years. And, and now it's, it's turned into something very different, but uh, what talk to me a little bit about what the program was like when you started, what the, the expectations were and then how your experience got to push it forward. Well, what, when I took it over, when I came there, um, uh, um, Cindy Howell, who hired me, um, she was she's now the the, the red tide person at Moat. Um, Cindy was looking for somebody who could help out the instruments because she had she had had built these platforms called Marvins. It's got the worst acronym ever: Burhab Autonomous Research Vessel in Situ. <laughs> and so <laughs> these Marvin platforms were built by um, uh, uh, actually a previous employee, Brian Bendis. Uh, uh, I should give me credit for it. That he was, it was his idea. It's kind of a neat idea. They take pontoon boats and put a truck box on it and the amount of some solar panels on it that put some, um, some water quality instruments in it and a met station. And they would tow it around. Um, originally it had like a little five horsepower motor they put on it, but they realized it's just as easy to tow it around and would place it somewhere and would then take measurements with it. And the, the, the cool thing about it also had a peristaltic pump on it that would pump water up from a couple of different depths. So we could, we could, if there's any stratification, we could see that. And it would then back flush the water out. So it cut down a little bit on the bifouling. So it was a neat idea, but nobody could get them working after Brian had left. Um, they, they had one that one they worked for a short period of time and then nothing. And so um, the challenge was that they needed somebody who was a, a gadget person who also had, who also could, you know, turn a wrench. And um, I was, I was a person for that. And so I came in and, and, and kind of got the program going again and, and did some modifications to put my own stamp. It actually built some of these for the ground up. Back the the pinnacle of it was um, uh, you and I working on that buoy. Um, it was a I designed a water quality autonomous platform, a buoy with solar panels, with instruments that were taking um, water quality measurements from you know salinity, temperature, chlorophyll, and such uh, instruments that were measuring uh, the currents, instruments that were measuring the the weather, and then feeding that into a um, controller that pro- that pre-processed it and send it all the way back to us. And then I was able to then take that data and send it on to the, um, the major um, ocean observatory system. So that was kind of a, a neat thing. And then 
in doing all that, I was able to see how some of these things changed over time. And we just published a paper on it. There's a, a paper on Marvin, um, well, not Marvin, on the, um, yeah, it was, it was a Marvin that we put out prior to before we, right before um, you started working with us, uh, out Sarasota Bay. And what we observed with it, it was really cool, is we saw the, um, that urea spiked up. And so Sydney was always interested in urea as a nutrient source for algae. And urea is now used in a lot of fertilizers because it's a slow release, um, as a slow release source of nitrogen. You put it in a fertilizer, bacteria break it down to nitrogen, uh, nitrate, and uh, or nitrite and, and, and ammonia and stuff. And then they're able, the plants are able to take it up. So basically it goes from urea eventually to nitrate. And we were curious, and Sydney's always had this, um, had this hypothesis that the urea could lead to changes in the species composition. And we saw that with this autonomous platform. We were able to record the urea with this, uh, a, a, an instrument that would chemically measure urea. It basically was a chemistry set in a little pump system that we put on there. And we could see the chlorophyll and the phycocyanin spike up and then grab water samples while are out there. And using this platform, we saw the, 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 the bay in Sarasota right next to a golf course with urea came rushing in from a runoff from land, go from being um, the tasty small diatoms to cyanobacteria. Wow. And then when it changed later on in the, in the summer, um, the, the next summer rains that came in and we had the spikes in urea, we had very low phosphate. So it switched over to these little tiny um, picoeukaryotes that were almost bacteriocized, but are, you know, eukaryotic algae, you know, have all the, the eukalyte and other parts. And they apparently have a different way of taking up urea. So we were able to see the change in the base of the food chain, the grass of this bay, using autonomous water quality instruments at, at FDRI. I thought it was a really cool experiment. And you say you recently published on that? Yes. Yeah, so we, uh, we we just recently published that um, that work from Sarasota Bay. Uh, right now, I'm actually working on a neat project. Uh, we're trying to get it off the, off the ground where we want to develop something similar to this and use it primarily as a test bed platform for um, water quality. Um, for being able to, to test mitigation things for, for hab species. So kind of going along the same idea as the Marvins, except I've, I've called these cyanoterminators because I couldn't really take Marvin anymore. And the, these are, are, we're looking at putting these at Lake Okeechobee and in some of the shallow areas around, um, uh, around um, uh, Captiva Sanibel. And they want to be able to test different ways of mitigating red tide blooms, such as sending out um, nanoparticles that might adhere to them and then using a magnet that sucks those things in back. And so instead of just going out and grabbing some and going back to lab, we're going to build a laboratory that they can just deploy and we'll adapt it for each one of these different mitigation things to test them out and see, then see if we can possibly scale it up to actually deal with the red, real, real red tide bone. Well, and this has always been one of the challenges with, with harmful algal blooms in Ford, but really all over the world. For people that, that might not be aware or, or understand some of that. Uh, could you speak a little bit to why these community composition shifts and understanding them are so important? Well, it's basically like if you're on terrestrial area and you got something eating grass, uh, you got your cow eating grass and all of a sudden it's nothing but thistles. <laughs> so that's pretty much what happens. <laughs> you're, you're taking the base of your food chain. Yeah. You're taking, you're changing the, 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 where energy enters the system. It enters it into plants. In oceanic system, it enters it into algae. And so the algae are the grass. 
And if you change the tasty grass to, you know, they they use a Florida, Florida tickweed, those little brown flowery plants that you get in your yard that you can't get rid of. If you yeah. change it to Florida tickweed, all of a sudden you're, you're not going to, you're not going to grow. You're not going to be able to have your feature cattle as much. Yeah. That's right. Everyone, everyone's going to have to look up what a Florida tickweed is now. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe show a picture of that. Yeah. <laughs> we'll include a link to that. I do not know. So yeah. <laughs> Eric knows uh, what <laughs> I, I do. I do. So as we're talking about this, there's, there's also something that you were involved in. Um, it started, it started a bit before your time in the field, but I think it really started accelerating more, uh, when, when you kind of entered this and that is the, the move towards more autonomous platforms and more autonomous systems where you can collect data over longer periods. Um, could you talk a little bit about the value of deployed or autonomous systems as opposed to uh, the the grab sample method for collecting data? Oh, definitely. Um, the number one reason is, is it, it, you know, believe it or not, OSHA will not let you send employees out in the middle of the night in a um, hurricane. <laughs> right. So these platforms can... It, especially if you build them sturdy enough, uh, I, I, and now I, I get ahead of myself. Hurricanes, would you usually pull them in? But for other types of weather or other types of extremes and stuff, when things are happening, when you got lots of water coming down and water and things are running off from the land and all that, those nutrients I was talking about earlier are entering, you're not going to be out there on a boat in the middle of a lightning storm. So ha- these platforms are able to do that. They're also to develop continuity so you can see time series changes. So you can see the inflection point where that change occurs. Um, you can't always do that from grad sample. Um, I, I'm, for the, the study that I just published, we went to that area and we're doing grab samples there, basically looking, that's how we were able to see the species composition shift, but the chlorophyll levels, we rarely caught it whenever we, we could catch it whenever there, there's this composition shift but most of the time we couldn't catch that spike in chlorophyll. So our spike would have been one little tiny point. Yeah. It would not have been enough to make a study off of base it off of. We could have, that could have just been a random variation or it could have been, we contaminated somehow and having that long time series showing the chlorophyll going up, which you know, as you know, chlorophyll is the, uh, is the main is pigment in plants and algae for taking in light, converting it to um, basically converting to chemical injury, converts it to sugar. And the chlorophyll, to see it go up like that, and see the salinity go down, and then see the urea go up, you couldn't have seen that um, just by grab sample. You missed a lot of that. So the two reasons are you uh, you cannot send people out in inclement weather. <laughs> you don't want to risk people's life like that for science. And the, the second thing is, is that you miss all the details. You miss all the small changes. Is the technology around these autonomous platforms changing rapidly, or is what's that like? I'd say it's changing pretty rapidly. Um, the reason being is we're able to come with smarter platforms. So the movement as originally was we just put something out there and just sit it in one place. And so what they're trying to do right now is come up with situational awareness so that if they see something, the platform then can respond. And so one of the... Um, the, the things that we're talking about looking at for um, using Aleko Kachobi is say we see a, an indication of a cyanobacteria balloon, 
um, we might have a couple of smaller autonomous um, um, mobile vehicles associated with it. We send out AUVs or we can send out a, 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 an autonomous drone and look at hyperspectral imagery. So that is where we're seeing a lot of changes in it. The other one is the types of data we're getting back are much more detailed and complex because computers have changed and communication has increased. I mean, with the with these advances that we've got in cellular technology, we can send massive amounts of data, including imagery, all the way back to our to our, to a process and 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 take care of in real time. So those are the two biggest that I look I think of right now. You've been able to spend more time working with remote sensing, which is is really interesting because that's one of those things where the the world of remote sensing is changing dramatically, where things that in the past could only be done at somewhat glacial pace because they required changes in satellite systems and you know big big government agencies to make real you know real significant investments now can be done at much smaller scale and i think it's one of those i'd be i'd be curious to know if that's one of those things that you see students being interested in because it it is very it feels very cutting edge in many ways well i mean it's, it's cutting edge but it's been around for you know half a century <laughs> half a century now i guess you could say well the original remote sensing was probably during the the 1800s uh, their late 1800s was a um a, a Frenchman went up on a balloon and shot from one of those old Dogger type cameras um, uh, that we used for military to sit there and shoot the enemy's position. And so it was one of the, that was the earliest, I guess, for remote sensing. It's, it, and we found out some neat stuff like a remote sensing. I don't know if y'all ever seen this. Um, there was a spy satellite that was put up by, um, by the CIA during the cold war that actually had just had big rolls of film in it. So before they had digital stuff, they shot these massive rolls of film and then they would parachute them out and then the boat would have to speed up and grab them and these high resolution black and white photos of you know of, of, of the Soviet Union and their their missile deployments. So it's it, it is, it's like I say, it's changed to the point now where a lot of the remote sensing is not as as you're going to in two different ways. You're going to greater coverage with more instruments. There are these private companies that literally have hundreds of, of satellites up now. That are looking at red, green, blue, and near infrared, which are the main channels you look at for, for predicting stuff. And then others are going the opposite way, going to hyperspectral, so that you get an image that has all these different colors, so you can actually go in and see your changes in spectra that might indicate a different species of algae, or um, if you're looking at minerals, might say, "Oh, here's a copper deposit." So um, there, there have been tremendous changes in it, and I teach remote sensing as one of the other courses, and so I. I, I there is a lot going on in that. I've had some people actually do some remote sensing stuff for my field method now. Yeah, and it's it seems very engaging for students too because it's something that they can that, that they're they're getting involved with at a much earlier age because they're seeing products that are that are derivatives of remote sensing. They they might not know it at the time, but they are. And then when you, I, I presume, when you present it to them as what it is then they already have some foundation in it. I know recently I was told by someone about, you know, how um, there's there's this new thing called photogrammetry. And I wanted to stop and go, that's not that new. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but around in the days, of course, of, of the film cameras too. Yeah. Right, exactly. Exactly, yeah. But uh, one of the biggest things, though, that it, it touches on that, the, the biggest thing that is interesting a lot of students in remote sensing is drones. 
you could buy a drone fairly inexpensively. Now, one of my students did a project where they compared the um, the the RGB signature from their little drone camera that they got up there with um, Landsat for an area, and what they could tell from the drone, what they could tell from Landsat with the limited uh, spectra of the drone versus the the less limited but spatially more larger pixel size of Landsat. Sure, there is a a place where from remote sensing to new cellular technologies to all those things that kids become really engaged at a broader scale with environmental science. What do you think if there is something is going to drive that? Well, the biggest thing is have them go out and collect data and go out in the field and see it physically firsthand. So we tried to do that not only with the, um, with the, the um, field methods class, but um, uh, Dr. Palomino here and I at, 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 at here and I came up with a wetlands course. And part of the wetlands course is the students go out and physically take soil cores, um, take a, a, a color chart and look at the soil color, and then you know take a, a, a sign out there and measure the, um, the, the water quality and put it all together and try and, and along with seeing what plants are available and such like that and delineate a wetland. So when you physically do something like that, that's what that's to me, that's where I see the students that sparks only come. They're like, Hey, I can do this. I've read about this, but I can actually go out and do this. What are they really getting out of it? Well, as you can see, it's hard to see it here. Data or it didn't happen. (laughs) 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 I grabbed it from it. You got that from me. Um, So anyway, um, the um, students primarily are, some of them will use different um, platforms. I, I've had students that used um, MATLAB and have used R. They were usually the students that were interning over with the College of Brain Sciences folks. But the majority of students are using something simpler like Excel. And so I actually have take my, require my students to give me a data-only presentation. So whenever they finish up their, their, their study, they, they've gone through and they've done, had a little time to process it, they then present before me in the class, this is my data. Because if you're really doing this as a project where you're working with, um, um, say, working for a, a, a county where you're trying to monitor you know, the, the chlorophyll levels or trying to determine if there's contamination of lead at an area, you're going to first take your measurements to come back and have a meeting and say, okay, this is what I found. What do y'all think I should do with it? And so... You, you get feedback from colleagues. And so I want students to do that. So I, I, I encourage them to take this data, put it in Excel and create graphics of it. If they've got time series data, show the time series trends. I've got, uh, I, I teach them how to use some basic stats with it. Um, there's a data analysis tool pack with Excel that most people don't realize is, is there. They can do and do basic t-tests. I don't encourage them right off the bat, unless they're unless they already got the background in it, to try any really advanced statistics with it. Um, so unless they've taken a course in it or are comfortable with it, I think that one of the problems that a lot of students have is they get enamored with you know oh we can do a neural network uh, study, but one of your most powerful statistics is the t-test. And so if I, I want my students to try that first. And so then I also want them to look at other people's data and say, how can I use that with my data? So everybody puts their data into spreadsheets and puts it on a common, um, uh, a common, we use box, a common um, um, site. 
and they can download other people's data and add that to their presentation or at least look at it and say, all right, they found this and it complements what I found over here. And so they can see the interrelations with the data. So more, most of what I get in field methods, uh, I get students to use data for is not really some complex um, visualization as much as it is looking at the time series and the trends and being able to kind of interpret those. Now, the remote sensing course, we use some very advanced um, software for it. And so the students are doing some stuff that is kind of prepackaged type um, programs that can go through and do neural networks, interpolations of it. That's much more advanced for those. But for my field methods, it's pretty basic. It's stats and, and Excel plots. So, Jim, what are the things that you really want to accomplish and leave behind kind of your legacy with this when, when you uh, decide to finish up? What are you going to be able to look back on and, and say that you are proud that you got done? Mm, I was, well, first of all, um, the nice thing about teaching is it's not super physically demanding, so you can do it. We got some great teachers here in their mid seventies to late seventies who are still active in it, which is kind of fun. Mm-hmm. And so that's that you're able to, the nice thing about teaching is it's, it's as long as you got this, as long as you got your, your mind, you're still able to keep working. And so, but the main thing I, my main legacy is to see that I passed on appreciation for science to the students. So to see that students go out and understand science and are able to um, communicate to science and are able to um, think in scientific method. So are there, are there any projects that you, you want to work on over the course of the next, let's say 10 or 15 years, things that you're, you're really driven towards something, something you have hanging in front of you that you want to get to? just what I talked about earlier, um, water quality mining platforms. I'd love to build a real network that does not just physical stuff. We got a okay physical network here in Florida. We really should have a much bigger system considering that Florida has, you know, the second longest coast of any um, state. And we rely on that coast because that is part of our economy and part of who we are here in Florida. Um, I'd love to start at least building out a, system that also, in addition to physics, can measure the biology, can give us chlorophyll and dissolved oxygen, um, the pH, and, and, a, and a way of supporting that system. Um, one of the ideas we've had is establishing like these public-private partnerships um, where are basically kind of form a nonprofit where we can take in sponsorships and people can say, I like the idea of a water quality platform here, so I will contribute so much to it. And you put their name up there on it and say, you know, donate about it. Kind of the NPR model is what I'd love yeah. to see. <laughs> And then spread that kind of franchise that about get um, as many different groups to help support these, you know, from universities to even high schools to help support and maintain these platforms and have a real network. That, that if, I, if I had a dream of anything related to the technology, what I've been doing, and we could see so many neat things if you had all these different interactive systems recording, something happens here and then, you know, miles down the river or miles out at sea, you see something else happen and you can start to see the relationships of how those come together. Um, we would learn so much more about our environment and be able to be aware of when those changes, those important changes were happening and hey, we need to do something now. Yeah. So we don't wait till, you know, Tampa Bay as, as happened in the 80s when it was declared dead, whenever it had massive amounts of macroalgae floating around in it and there was no oxygen hardly and the seagrass level had gone to a tenth of what it is now wow so i i would i would i would i would love to, to, to be able to find that before it happens well jim your uh, 
your passion for the research and your teaching is palpable. And this has just been a pleasure. Um, really yeah. enjoyed this conversation. Hope you have too. I, well, I appreciate you having me. I, 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 I love talking about my passion and also, you know, talking about my place, you know, University of South Florida, St. Petersburg. Thank you all for listening. This is Aquapod brought to you by In-Situ. Please subscribe to Aquapod wherever you listen to podcasts and check us out on insitu.com. That's in hyphen situ.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. This episode was produced by Helen Taylor, Eric Robinson, and Lauren Ryan with a big assist from Josiah Homeland and Versa Studio in beautiful Colorado. We look forward to bringing you more water monitoring stories from the field. And until then, take care out there.